Today on The Art Dealer Show, you will hear art dealer Nim Vaswani say, You're the client, I'm the salesman. You have your money in your pocket. It's my job to get your money from your pocket and take this piece of art home with you. So it obviously starts off with being adversarial. Welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have art dealer and owner of The Roadshow Company, Nim Veswani. Nim and I got into some great topics. If you're an art dealer, if you're in the business, or you just want to be in the business, you're going to definitely want to stick around and hear this entire conversation. We talk about what it takes to survive in this business by actually knowing what it is that we do for a living. And, and I'm going to give you a hint. It's not just selling pretty pictures. We're also going to talk about the tragic folly that some art dealers take in selling art as an investment. And then we're going to get into something a little bit deeper. Matter of fact, we're going to open up this way. We're going to talk about, well, well, you know what? This has got a little bit more of a story to it. So uh, I tell you what, why don't you meet me on over at uh, the art dealer bar where I can get in a little bit deeper into this one. Okay, you comfortable? Got yourself a nice drink from the bar? Are you ready? Uh, this is actually going to be a short one. Uh, not just the drink, but my typical little story that I like to begin here with. Uh, and it's because my conversation with Nim is a relatively long one, and I want to leave a lot of room for it without making this a crazy long episode. So I'm going to tell you a little story um, about... A few years ago, I got a phone call. I'm sitting in my office, and I got a call from a guy uh, somewhere in the middle of the country. Uh, and, and I can't remember exactly where, not being disparaging. I just don't happen to remember precisely where it is. But he's in a town, and he's in a town that's on the way to a more touristed area. And it gets a lot of traffic because of its neighbor. And he told me he's got an interesting setup there. He owns the bar in town, he owns a hotel in town, he owns a restaurant, he owns a gift shop. He's made an entire enterprise by opening up all these little separate businesses in this town that you would hit on your way to this other bigger place. And he says, I want to open one more business now, and I want to open up an art gallery. And I said, that's great. Now, this is, if you're in my business, and, and I'm not just an art dealer, if you haven't picked up on this, I actually represent artists, I publish their works, and I distribute it to other galleries. This is an opportunity. And depending on the version of a distributor and publisher that you are, that also varies on what kind of opportunity that, that you think this is. And I asked him the first question I tend to ask people in this uh, particular situation. Have you ever been in the business before? What do you know about art dealing? And how are you planning on approaching this? And he explained, he said, you know, I, I haven't been in the business before. And I said, wow, that's, that's a bit risky. I go, you know, the art business isn't easy. It isn't really meant for everybody. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than most people think it is. And I said, well, you know, I'm a little bit nervous for you. He said, you know, you're running a lot of risk. And he said, you know, don't, don't worry, because I got this covered. He said, you know, for the past decade or so, he's explaining to me, I've been traveling out to Las Vegas. And when I'm in Las Vegas, one of my favorite things to do is go visit all the galleries out there. And I see them all, he tells me. And he said, over the years, I have collected from these galleries over a hundred works of art. So I have a lot of familiarity with 
what sells out there and how art dealers do what they do and how galleries operate, I feel rather, uh, uh, you know, indoctrinated into this field of yours. And I said, mm, you know, I got to stop you there. And, and I explained to him, I said, you know, this is, if I was a different kind of publisher, distributor, this is a moment that I would just quietly say in my own head, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, but who cares? I'll just tell him he's got to buy 20 of my pieces of whatever and uh, have a nice little day's business. And if he ever calls me again, great. And he probably won't. But that's not who I am. And quite frankly, I think the guys that are like that, most of them are gone right now. Instead of just thinking those things, I said it out loud. I said, this is the moment that I would rip you off. That's what you're setting yourself up for. And of course, that got some pause. And I said, I understand. You've been to Vegas many times. You bought a lot of artwork. You've been in the galleries. And I think that's great. And I said, but here's what it sounds like to me. Sounds like this. Sounds like if I said, I've been to Vegas a hundred times and I love magic. And every time I'm in Vegas, I see all the magic shows on the strip. I see Copperfield and Blaine and everybody else in between. And I am now going to be a magician. And the appropriate answer to that would be, well, you've just seen a few hundred versions of a lot of smoke and mirrors. You have no idea what goes on behind those curtains. It's the same thing. You've been in dozens of galleries. You've bought hundreds of pieces of artwork. I don't care if you bought thousands of pieces of artwork. You just saw a lot of smoke and mirrors over and over and over again. Now, I, I'm not trying to say that the art business is a, a world of deception and illusion. Um, don't get my analogy wrong. I'm just saying that we're in the world of performance. And when we do our job right, so right that someone buys hundreds of pieces of artwork, we are, we are performing. We are not showing the nuts and bolts of our business. We're showing the romance of our business. What I was trying to do was protect that man, that very nice person, by the way, uh, we should have really appreciate him a lot. He's put a lot of money into our industry. I was trying to protect him from going into a business and not knowing what that business was. And that, that I think, is a thing that comes up a lot in my conversation with Nim Vaswani. A number of times you'll hear as we talk, Nim will say, this is the problem with other galleries. This is why some galleries have gone out of business. And as you listen to it, I want you to have this little story kind of in the back of your head. Because I think what he's really saying in those moments, almost straight out, the reason those people are out of business is they didn't know what business they were in. And I think that's true. I just don't think we see it necessarily exactly the same way. And I'm going to get to that right after this. You've got a gallery in the perfect part of town where everybody can see it and you get an amazing amount of traffic. Inside that gallery, you have some fantastic art and you didn't take that lightly. You spent a lot of time finding the artist you really believed in. And you, yourself, you're on the floor of that gallery and you're selling that art. You've got years of experience selling art and the people who work with you do too. You take everything you do 
very seriously. You had a show coming up, and you've been preparing every little detail. That show is going to be beautiful. And now it's time to put the word out. What are you going to do? Are you just going to have the intern write up a press release? Are you just going to call someone in that you found on the internet to do your publicity? No, it's a specialty. It's a specialty like being an artist, like having a perfect gallery, and like being a great art dealer. You need someone who knows what it takes to represent an art gallery properly, and that's a specialty onto its own. You need to call Allison Zucker-Perlman over at Relevant Communications. You can find her website, relevantcommunications.net. Allison Zucker-Perlman and her crack team of publicity specialists know exactly what it is that your gallery needs. Take a card out of Danny's Rolodex, do yourself something right, and give them a call. Can you get into an art gallery if you don't meet a gallery owner? Can a gallery owner sell a piece of artwork if he doesn't meet a collector? No. It all comes down to meeting someone. It comes down to the encounter. It's a person-to-person thing. That's the kind of business we are in the art business. And that's why more and more our business is leaning towards the fairs. It's where people meet each other. And no one puts on more or bigger or better fairs, in my opinion, than the folks at Redwood Media Group. Redwood Media Group puts on fairs all year round just for the art industry, and they do it in many different cities and locations. Currently, the one that's coming up is the show over at Indian Wells. That's right outside of Palm Springs. It's a beautiful show, and if you got time, you should make it out there. I plan to be there myself. And then after that, well, it's the big show. It's Art Expo in New York City. I'm going to be there, too. Come to the shows. Meet the people. If you're an artist, it's a place to show your artwork. If you're a gallery owner, if you are a art dealer, it's a place to meet collectors. That's what they're there for. That's what they do. Great. If you want to find out more, go check out Redwood Media Group or just go to those shows' websites like artexponewyork.com. They'll have all the details. I have a confession to make. I am a cheater. And I believe in shortcuts. For this podcast, I get a lot of information from reading it in magazines. When I wanted to get listeners, I got that magazine as well to put the word out to all the people who subscribe to it. I'm talking about Art World News. That's where I've been going. I've been going there for as long as they've been around, going on 21 years this year. I read articles about who's doing what and who's working with who and what artists have got what going on. You get the idea. There's a great piece in there about some fantastic trends going on in the framing world right now, too, in this month's issue. And when I want to get the word out about something that I'm doing inside our business, that's exactly where I go to, too. I know they all come together there. I know the magazine serves the function that it's meant to be, which is educating us about what each of us is doing in the art business, that is and getting the word to each of us through advertising on their pages. If you want to learn what's happening, go to Art World News. If you want to get the word out about what you're doing in the art business, go to Art World News. So Nim Vaswani, my guest today, Nim and I go back a little bit. Like a lot of folks who come on this show, they're not just incredible professionals within our field of art dealing. A lot of them are folks that I have shared that profession with, and Nim is no exception to this. Nim and I have the benefit from that long friendship of getting to speak rather frankly to each other. And some time ago, Nim was going to pass through uh, San Francisco, 
Yeah, he was on his way to Asia. He was going to do a show uh, with Dali's artwork out there. Turned out to be a great success, by the way. And I suggested, since you're passing through, since you're going to be making connections at SFO, and since there's going to be a long uh, layover for you, uh, about six hours, as we knew at the time, I said, why don't we take advantage of this? And what I was talking about was I wanted to get Nim on the podcast for a long time. So I figured I would go down to the airport, pick Nim up, bring him back to my house, get him a really nice dinner, sit on the mic for an hour or so up in the office slash studio, uh, and, um, you know, we'd get to knock this out. Unfortunately, it didn't work out so much that way. And unfortunately, uh, that left us no time. So instead, we just decided to grab a bite to eat while he was there, which was wonderful. I always enjoy getting to see Nim. Now, while hanging out with him, uh, we started talking about the business. As a matter of fact, it, it almost became kind of like a pre-conversation before going on the mic, even though Nim didn't necessarily know it. And really, for the first time, I think in the many years that we've known each other, we got to share our real backgrounds. I talked about how I got started in the business and the things I studied to do before I became an art dealer and the jobs that I had ahead of that and the kind of places I had been. And Nim did the same, things that you'll hear about actually in our conversation coming up. And somewhere along the line, we started talking about what it is to really be an art dealer. Now, Nim, like me, had sold other things before becoming an art dealer. Unlike me, Nim firmly believed and was rather frank about it in our conversation that there was no difference between, no significant difference at least, between an art dealer and anyone else who sells high-end goods, watches, cars, boats, whatever it is. And he made a pretty good case. This sent me, and by the way, if this is sounding familiar, and hopefully it does, it's because I use this as a setup, as a premise for an intro that I did about seven episodes back. Actually, it's episode 007, if you want to go check it out. What I didn't tell you in that introduction back then as I was describing this existential tailspin that this conversation put me into, that the more I had to deal with the idea that if there's nothing special about this, if we're just salespeople in the end, uh, that it was eroding my sense of the specialness of what it is to be an art dealer. And, uh, well, as I said, you can go back to that earlier episode and take the journey with me as I kind of spun back and forth on that one. What I didn't do, though, as I was saying, I didn't tell you it was Nim, and I didn't really fully tell you his argument, his angle on this. It was a little bit unfair, although I thought I could get away with it because I really didn't think Nim was going to be a listener to the podcast. I think it wasn't more than 24 hours after dropping that episode that I got a text from Asia, from Nim, saying, I guess I owe you an apology which I think should have had quote marks around that, knowing Nim. <laughs> this, this conversation, the reason I'm setting it up this way is so that you understand it's the starting point, that these are two old art dealer friends hanging out at Nim's house in Las Vegas. By the way, after having, and this is after taking my little bit of abuse, no less, after having a home-cooked meal with his entire family, uh, specifically an Indian home-cooked meal, that I am not soon to forget. We enter into this conversation, as I was saying, 
at the starting point of responding to that intro of that episode back at 007. I talked about that conversation we had at the airport. Yes. And I did a, uh, a bit of a dramatic version of it. Yeah. And uh, You think? <laughs> <laughs> but it, like I said, it wasn't coming from a dishonest place. No. That is, I, I had a set of feelings. and no, But you sensationalized it. I sensationalized it just as an excuse to be able to express something on the podcast. The point I was trying to make yeah. is... I came, I, I'm not, I've not always been in the art business. I've only been in it for about 25 years. I came in from a jewelry background. My family was in jewelry. I was with Cartier for nine years. And so I've been used to selling expensive items. When I came into the art business, I came in at Circle Gallery, started to work for them as a sales director at Bell Arbor, and eventually ended up taking over the gallery when they went out of business. I've seen too many situations over the years where people love the art business for the art business, but they forget it's a business, and then they go out of business, as we've seen. I wanted to make that a distinction as far as I was doing, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. This was going to be a business, and, and it worked for me. So do I love art? Yes. Is it my be-all, end-all? No. I like to sell art. I love selling it. Selling art, but it's it's an item to be sold, and I do that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I sound like a philistine. You know, let me approach it this way. This is maybe a fault in me. I've always been a person who has wanted an identity in the work that I do. It takes all your time. It, you know, it's it's a big part of your life, and whatever I did could never be just a job. No matter how much money it made me or how difficult it was or whatever it was, if, if I was special for doing it, it still had to be something that reflected something that I valued. And when you and I were talking, it was the notion of it being interchangeable, that this has no unique quality to it, regardless of the, you know, the end product of it, that what we do as art dealers, that that is in its own specialized profession. And I guess what I wonder with you is now here you've been doing it for 25 years. If I found you something that made more money or if the art stopped making money, would it be just as simple to just jump into that next thing? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question since we have a conversation. Sure. If you had a gallery, which you have had, and you were selling Dali for the sake of exam, for the sake of argument, and Dali stopped selling. Would you continue to sell Dolly? No. You would go into something else that sold something else. So how am I different? Is it, it's okay to switch from one artist to another, but if the whole art business died, I have to put food on my table. I have people to feed. Why wouldn't I start, start something else? But I love what I do. I love what I do with art. And I love what I do with the arts that I deal with, as we know. We started with Nikita. We did very well with it. Peter Max came to us. We did very well with it. Mm -hmm. But we didn't make Fleetwood and fell flat on our face. So, and we moved on. And he moved on. To me, it's a business. I have seen too many galleries stick with something because they love it, because they're purists. But they're going out of business. They're losing money. But because of the purity of what they do, 
they'll stick with it. I disagree with that altogether. Well, there's two different things going on, though. You're talking about switching with inside the industry. I'm talking about that it's something that people are invested in, in, in the way that they approach it. You know, that there is a specialized talent to be able to, and skill to be able to sell art specifically. I don't think and so. And that, you don't? Okay. I don't think so. I never sold a piece of art in my life when I was selling Cartier. Mm-hmm. I moved from Cartier to the art business and became one of the top salesmen at uh, Circle okay, almost let's, immediately. Let's, let's back up then, because okay. you're getting into your biography okay. here. All right. You, started, you came from Cartier, but what's before that? What did you, what did you start off wanting to do? You're a young man, you're, you're getting out of whatever level of school that going, you finished. Without going on into a hundred years ago, uh-huh. I really got my retail training in England, where I grew up, in the record business. And now you talk about the antithesis of selling a 45 vinyl as compared to selling a Picasso original. <laughs> but I learned, learned by selling records. And the first thing you learn about selling records is if it's climbing the charts, you better have enough in stock. But the second it's number one, you better be out of stock because whatever, once it's on its way down, whatever inventory you got left in stock, you're going to have to eat with salt and pepper because it's dead. Mm-hmm. So you learn the business about inventory rotation and you made sure how, you learned how to sell and you learned how to, how to manage inventory. So that was my basic background. Mm-hmm. My family was in jo- the jewelry business, and this was in Jamaica, and then they moved to Miami because Jam- Jamaica at that point was turning communist. So we had a store in, in Miami. We opened, this is, I'm going back to 75, mm-hmm. long time ago. That's when I first moved to the state. In many ways, not just in years. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great place in those days. It still is a great place, but, but I was in the jewelry business, and from the jewelry business, we, we went into Cartier. And I stayed with Cartier for nine years, and I was in Dallas. So I learned to sell more expensive things. When the, the bust came in Dallas, after the oil bust and everything else, we went out of business. I had to get a job, and I got a job selling art And this was at Bell Harbor with Circle. With Circle. They were looking for somebody. I went and worked for them. So I'd never sold art before. But I became a very good salesman very quickly because I was selling something else similar. So there's no specialty in selling art. Is it completely just coincidence that you wound up in a gallery? I mean, did you see that there was a connection because you were selling high-end retail and there are another high-end retail operations? No, I I went through the classified columns and looked for a job. Just an ad in the paper? Absolutely. First one to give you a job of the ones you went out for? Pretty much. So Not particularly excited that it was an art gallery when you came I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. I didn't know anything about it. But selling is selling. You're a salesman, Danny. You know that. I mean, if I put you in, let's reverse it. If I put you in Cartier tomorrow, I guarantee you'd be one of the top salesmen there very quickly. Are you just basing that on the fact that I've sold for this long and I've done it at this level? Correct. Selling skills. Mm -hmm. Selling skills. I mean, the old days of Neiman Marcus, you could walk in there and they'd walk up to you and ask you if they could help you. And you said, no, I'm just looking. They'd leave you alone. That's not selling. That's a clerk. We don't do that. The galleries that do that today are the ones that don't survive. Well, they're not open today. We're, we're way past that. Right. If someone, we're trying to sell somebody something, and they say, you've got to think about it, we're not going to let it go. That's it. What do you need to think about? What's your hesitation? What can I do to help make close the sale today? Mm-hmm. So we do all that. 
And most aggressive galleries that survive and do well do that. The purists don't. So do you think back when you were selling Cartier, though, that you had figured that out when most jewelry, jewelers or people who sold jewelry did not? Well, I first started selling jewelry for the family, for, mm-hmm. for my family business. It wasn't Cartier. It wasn't high-end either. So we'd sell regular jewelry like a Zales would. The elevation to Cartier came later. I had no choice but to learn how to do it. But if you have skills as a salesperson, and I speak of you, Danny, or any of the people that we know that are good salespeople, you can pluck them out of the art business and put them in pretty much anything, any other business, and they'll succeed because it's the selling skills. So if I disagree with you when you say it takes Spanish, uh, special selling skills to sell art, not true. I, I think there is a, there's a difficulty that comes in with art that you don't see in things like the Cartier. In the Cartier, it's a commodity. It's in the magazine. I know everybody I know knows what it's worth. So if I buy it, this is a very specific message being put across. You know, a piece of artwork, I can't flaunt it the same way I can with a, you know, a car. It's very hard to measure up against anything else. You know, I don't know what it's worth based upon the fact that this is just what they sell them for, like I might for a watch, which might be in other stores for the same price. I couldn't disagree You're, with you more. No, you don't think so? No, because the people we sell to, for example, uh-huh. people buy Peter Max because they like it, but they want people to know it's a Peter Max. We sold Picassos, and every time, let me give you an example. We had two Picassos on the wall. One had Picasso's name and his date of birth, etc., on a brass plaque mm-hmm. on the painting, and one didn't. When we sold the other one that didn't, they insisted we get them the plaque because they wanted people to know it was a Picasso. Right. So, yes, it's, I mean, if you're buying a Cartier watch, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mechanical achievement. It's something beautiful, the way it's done. It's a piece of art. It really is the way it's done. It's funny I'm using that word, it's a piece of art, but it is. But it, it is. is. You know, the way it's, it's a mass produced piece of art, way, but it's a piece of art. Yes. Um, take Patrick Philippe. Mm-hmm. They're not mass-produced. They're hand-done. Breguet. I mean, I block band. I can go into various names of things that are done by hand and that are beautiful. People that buy art, buy art. Take on a, on a, on a different scale. You know, I'm talking to you about Picasso and, and Dali and, and uh, Peter Max. Look at what, uh, what's his name? The Painter of Light. Thomas oh, Kincaid. Kincaid. Uh-huh. Sold. I mean, by the thousand. And people would brag about it being a Kincaid. So people that buy art, trust me, buy art because of the brand name, if you like, or because of the prestige of owning that piece of art. There is a point, though, that it's before a brand. I mean, what if you're selling a piece of artwork that doesn't have the same kind of level of recognition, which most don't, of a Peter Max? But let me ask you a question. Every gallery that sells that to a client will tell them it's a brand name and that he's a very famous person. Otherwise, they'd never make this sale. That's a good point. Yeah, that at the end, that's the impression. Well, if I'm, if I'm going to sell you uh, this piece of glass and you don't know who it is, I'm going to tell you this is a very famous guy who's done very well, he's done great work, etc. and that's why you should own it. Why else would you buy it? It's, it's very rare that somebody just buys something for the sake of buying something. They believe they're getting value. What are the two, this is something I've been teaching, the two things that sell art, a value and the right of ownership, the pride of ownership. All right, so how does that translate in the process? 
And, and there was something you once told me, you know, just recently, that you were writing sales manuals early on. Yeah. You were doing that for Circle, right? Um, and that's very funny you should bring that up. I was using the manuals that I used to do for Cartier, almost identical, because it's the same process. You know, when somebody wants to buy a piece of art from you. So oh, I'm going to take it back to that for a minute. So at that time, would you say that that was something that the art business was lacking? That other industries had figured out certain processes and sales Absolutely. that had not yet really become formalized into the business? In general, yes. Do you of think they, they were, were doing the... the same thing unconsciously and it just wasn't a formula at that point? Or not to say, you know, formula no, is not the best me, word, but. Let me take it back, for example. Sure. The American way of selling art or jewelry uh-huh. or watches is a lot different from the European way of selling it. If you go to Cartier in France, they think, they really think they're it. They're doing you the favor to sell art, uh, to sell the, the watch. They're arrogant enough to, to show you that arrogance. So they don't care if they'll make the, make the sale or not. They really don't. They, and they think that you're going to buy it because of, because of the, the brand name itself. As Americans, we're much more intelligent than that. We sell art or we sell jewelry, but we sell it as a service. We sell it because we want to sell it. Uh, we give a damn about selling it, mm-hmm. and we want them to own it because we want to perform better, make better sales. We're much more aggressive than than Europe is. In the old days, it was a different way of selling it. Now we've learned. We've learned because we've got higher rents. We've got higher commissions to pay our staff. We've got bigger overhead, and we have to make it. So here's what I'm thinking as you were saying that, which is, is the art business maybe kind of dependent upon us? us being the United States. Even now, you look at things like Art Miami, you know, the big auction houses starting off really in the States, Sotheby's, Christie's, and such. Now it's spreading, as you pointed out. We're seeing, matter of fact, China has more auction houses than the world has ever seen at this point. But did it maybe require for the art business to work, as we know it, the modern art business, for the culture of the United States, the American culture, to infuse itself into it first, that aggression. Let me answer that the way I think. Art was always sold, whether anywhere in the world. We just took it to a different level. It doesn't mean we were much more cultured than the rest of the world. Is We just sold it better. Mm-hmm. In your statement that auction houses are going to Asia, etc., that's part of the reason, but they're going there because it's new money. And that's what's drawing them. I've been going to Hong Kong for years. And what I saw in Hong Kong a month ago is like nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, you've got million-dollar pieces of jewelry in the windows, and several of them, Mm -hmm. because the Chinese are coming down and buying it. They've got money. They never used to. I don't think it's just money. You know, there's a line that keeps on coming up. I'm working right now with a company in China that's interested in one of the artists we handle. And they're not coming from the art business. They've been in retail for a very long time. And before that, manufacturing of luxury uh, items, specifically jewelry. And the one phrase that they keep on repeating with their, in regards to their interest in handling our artwork is aspirational. That the culture is aspirational. That now that they have money, it's not just the money alone that they want. They want this much more amorphous thing, this this intangible that says, I've achieved. 
and they're using as a standard a very Western standard in that. Keeping up with you the know, Joneses. Yes, it's keeping up with the Joneses. Absolutely. Exactly. And it's, so it's what kind of car am I driving? What am I wearing on Absolutely. my wrist? It's not enough that it's valuable, and, and, and it's not even enough that everybody knows that I'm, what I'm wearing or what I have in my home is valuable. It has to be of a very specific order. And I think that's the one thing that's spreading around right now. Yeah. Now, how do you think we translate that in the art business? Because I think that's what's been going on all this time. And, I, and again, like you, I don't think it's because people don't like art. They love art. I think it means a lot to them. You know, I have that when you thing. say people, are you talking about dealers or are you talking Everybody. about the general public? People, us who sell it, collectors, yeah. and the general public who buy it or don't buy it. People genuinely get you know, something very deep and meaningful from art. You know, museums exist for that purpose. But there is some sort of transference. How is it do you think we're communicating in the process of the sale? That transfer from the appreciation of it on an aesthetic level, the appreciation of it on an emotional level, uh, maybe encourage those things in a heightened way and transfer that into what is perhaps quietly in the background, a real conversation of keeping up with the Joneses. Well, you have to find a happy medium. You have to play on, on all the various emotions that, that go into, if you're talking about us trying to sell art to somebody. In general, yeah. Yeah, it's, you have to appeal to various things. That, like I said, the pride of ownership. Mm. Um, we at Roadshow Company absolutely forbid selling art as an investment. In fact, if you go to any of our shows, there's signs on all the walls, several of them, that basically say, you know, don't buy art for an investment. Buy it because you, because you like it, not because you appreciate it. But a lot of galleries don't do that. <laughs> there's a gallery, and I won't say the name, that you and I were talking about before this conversation that literally has the opposite message in a, on a sign in their front window. Yeah, well, a lot of people do that. Take a walk down Duval, and you see it all the time mm -hmm. in Key West. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not. It's a dishonest way of doing it. And on the cruises, they used to do it. I think it's also a promise, not only dishonest, but unnecessary, and you can't fulfill it. Well, it's, a very, it's very short-term thinking. They just want to make the sale. Mm -hmm. They'll worry about the consequences. And that's that. Because you're not thinking long-term. And if, if I thought that way, we wouldn't have been in business for 25 years like we have. It's, Somewhere down the line, they're going to wonder where that investment was. Yeah. And that'll be the last piece of artwork that they ever bought. Right. And they'll tell their friends. But it's, it's, not, it's not the way to sell art. You know, I was talking about this in another interview I did at one point in a slightly different context. And it was when I came into the business... It was just a few years past the time that the Dolly scandals happened. And I would get people who would go into the viewing room with me and fall in love with a piece of artwork, be totally sold on it, and say, we bought Dollies back in the day, and we're never going to get burned like that again. We're done. Well, it's funny you should bring up Dali, because I represent the Argelay collection. And until now, until that point, we never touched Dali, because it was tainted, and you couldn't take a chance on it. And it was too difficult to explain the difference. Correct. You couldn't break it apart. Correct. And until the Argelay family approached me. Actually, Greg Block came to me and offered, offered this to me, and, I, and I'm very grateful to him for it, because I knew the source. We were buying it from the source. This wasn't secondary market. It wasn't questionable. This was coming from archives. Pieces that we were selling hadn't seen the light of day. Yeah, I'm glad that some people went to jail for it. It's, um, so, you know, it's like counterfeiting. You might as well print up $100 bills. And that's effectively what they did. Huh? Yeah, that's, they, that's exactly what they were And you know, the real crime of it was they marred the name of one of the greatest artists of the 20th century in the process. 
I mean, I know he was culpable in his own way. He was a genius. Absolutely. Let me go back to that history again. So you've, you've been lurking, working for Circle. Okay. Okay. You've obviously risen in the ranks or to the point I was a regional and I was looking after the Southeast. Was there any big observation you made at that time in selling art? Like here's something that's unique to this process. Any single different differentiating thing? No, because I did None it the all. other way around. I came into do, to selling art and I applied the only methods I had learned selling jewelry. But you didn't see any tweak to take place? No, you just had to know your knowledge. You had to have your knowledge, but then you had to know your knowledge in jewelry and watches. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just, nowadays you can because you just say it's a Cartier and the brand name. But back then, you know, people had to be explained to as to what the watch was and what it did. And we find this, a lot of people don't care about the history of the art. And let me give you an example. I used to do, even when we, I worked at Princess as a consultant, cruises. Mm -hmm. And I used to do a five to 10 minute lecture on, on Picasso, for example. Uh, you know, there'd be this auditorium and, and talk. And after five minutes, you see their eyes, you know, I was talking about them, their eyes glaze over mm -hmm. until I changed the tactic. And I turned around and said, you know, a couple of questions, for example. Picasso was a very big man. Can anyone tell me how tall he was? What has this got to do with art? But I asked the question, and I had hands all over the place. I was being interactive. Yeah. And then I turned and say, five foot three. And they'd laugh. And I'd say, yeah, seriously, he was five foot three. A lot of people don't know that, but it's a fact. He was a very small man. And they loved that. They laughed. They loved that. I said, can I tell you another story? And they go, yeah. Picasso and a friend of his, Max Jacob, when they first moved to Paris, stayed in a small apartment. They had one bed, and they shared that bed in the sense that one worked at night, one worked in the day. And thieves broke in, and they took all their worldly goods. Guess what they left behind? Picasso's paintings. They weren't worth stealing then. I found that you find these anecdotes, as I call them, and you tell people about these things, they're much more amusing than where Picasso went to school and how many brushstrokes he used to do a single piece. And that's what, that was entertainment. That's what sold art. Do you think it makes it more human to concerned. them or it's just something that they can grasp onto because they don't need as much context to that? Or is it the thing that's transportable? Because we often say in our business, half of what you're selling them is a story that's being told that goes along with the art. You're giving them the ability to give their own presentation. You're giving them something to hold on to emotionally about what you're selling. And that's what worked. Uh, sure, it's a brand name, the biggest brand name of all when you talk about Picasso. So you know that they're buying something that's pure, hopefully, if it wasn't a fake. And we made sure it wasn't. Um, but people aren't, people are more interested in the entertainment factor, factor of it. And that's what I applied to when we did Roadshow Company. Coming back to what you, your question, when Circle went out of business, I went to see Randy Whitman, who was the owner of Bell Harbor Shops. And I'd worked there for a while, so he knew me. I said, I'd really like to take over the gallery. And he said, do you have any money? And I said, no. And I knew I could put some art together. And he said, let me think about it. And he came back the next day and he said, do you have a $10,000 security deposit? And I said, I have it in my 401k. He said, you do that? And I said, yeah, I'd do it. 
He said, go get me a check for $10,000. It's your security deposit. I'm going to give you an 18-month lease. And um, the rent was five or $6,000 at the time in Bal Harbor. Did, did you deal. know what you were going to do at that point? Sorry? Did you know what you were going to do at that point? I didn't know point? what the hell I was going to do at that point. Did it have I had your artist pick out or no, any of those? I had to yeah. go and scrounge for art, uh-huh. but we made it work. And things got better. And 18 months turned into five years. And we did very well. But I want to point out something here. Sure. Okay. And this is not to try to call you on your shit or anything, but we discussed it being a kind of interchangeable thing. And I hate to, hate to keep on coming back to that. But you stuck with it. There was something about working in an art gallery that was attractive enough, was interesting enough. I was good at so, it. Right. But you could have been good at it, you know, by the same definition as just about anything else. So when they went belly up, you didn't go looking for just anything. You wanted to go out there and open up your own art gallery. No, but Danny, think about it. I've been at Circle at that point for like nine years. Mm-hmm. I was very good at what I was doing. I'd made a regional manager. We'd built a whole bunch of clients. And I had an opportunity to stay in the same location to keep doing what I'd been doing successfully for nine years. Well, that makes perfect sense. Why would I suddenly switch gears? Sure. I would if Uh I had to. But it seemed like the intelligent choice at the time. And it turned out it was. But, you know, I always say this. There are two things I go for my success. I've been very lucky being the right place at the right time. For example... If Randy Whitman had looked at me at that point and said, no, I'd already applied for a job and gotten it at Wentworth Gallery. But thank God he said yes. So simultaneously, you're covering your bases and seeing if you can Correct. get a job. I had to, if I needed a job, yeah. I would have gotten it. I had it. And the second thing um, is the team. I would be nothing, nothing, and I do not exaggerate this, without the team I have. They are magnificent. It's taken me a long time to build it. We've been together for 20 years. Most important is I'm not a detail-oriented person, so I'm not a micromanager. The trick for every successful business is, I believe, especially in my case, is to hire the right people and get out of their way. And you'll find out soon enough if they're not good enough, because then you replace them. I've been very fortunate I haven't had to. Everybody we've started with, we still have. Everybody. And we've grown. And you know most of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, but so, they're so, amazing. All right, so let's go back to opening up that gallery, or maybe you should jump forward to at what point you... Rod Parker. Yeah. A uh, friend of mine. I haven't seen him in years. I'd love to see him. Ron Parker came to me and said, we have this young girl who's supposedly called a petite Picasso. She's 11 and a half years old. And she's going on tour with Polaroid. And this is... 97. Okay. She's going on tour with Polaroid to six cities, and Miami is one of them. He says, I think you should do a show. And I said, when? He said, July. I said, July in Florida? Nobody's here. And this is what relative to you opening up your own gallery? I just opened. Literally. We opened in 96. Circle closes. You've opened up your gallery. Ron comes to you. Three days. Says, I got a a girl for you. Well, he came to me in early 97. Okay. And saying that this thing was happening in July of 97, six months later. So now in retrospect, I see a little luck coming your way. Yes. Yeah. That's, I said, listen, I've been, I've been very lucky. Like I said, if Randy Whitman hasn't said yes to me, there'd be no roadshow company. If Ron Parker hadn't come to me 
and, and asked me. Anyway, we did the show in July. And I don't have to tell you, the girl was Alexandra Nikita. I adore her. I still adore her. And she was a phenomenon. I mean, 60 Minutes, I'd just run a story on her at the time. And there were lines of people waiting to come in to the gallery. I had to get on a soapbox and ask people to leave because the fire marshal had said we're going to, he was going to shut us down. That's how busy it was. And this is July. I mean, nobody's in Florida in July. Not in those days, anyway. So what do you think made it so appealing? Mozart again. <laughs> Child prodigy. At 11 and a half, painting like Picasso. And there was a lot of press at that time kind of telling the story sure, that way. Sure, she was new. She was fresh. She was a joy. So tell me, in context of what we've been talking about so far, what made them the most excited? Was it they're going to witness a part of history, be there for the moment, or they're getting in on the ground floor? All three. It was a combination of everything. And it was the right price at the time because it was new and it hadn't got silly prices wise. Mm -hmm. Later it got silly, but it worked out beautifully. So a month later, a friend of mine who had also done the same thing that I did, she was one of the Circle Galleries and had taken over that gallery and opened her own after Circle's collapse. We were talking and she said, um, things are bad, things are tough, etc." And I said to her at the time, I said, why don't you do the show with Nikita? It'll bring you back up. And she said, I can't afford to do it. I don't have, et cetera, et cetera. What market was this in? Denver. Uh-huh. Myrna. Oh, sure. Wonderful woman. So I said, I'll stake you. I had a lot of money at that time. You know, we just done a very successful Nikita show. Uh-huh. And I said, I'll stake you, but I'll pay for all the expenses, everything, and I'll take half the profit. And at which point she said, what if it's, a, if it's not a success? What if it's a failure? I can't afford to pay you. I said, you don't have to pay me at all. And oddly enough, that's how the roadshow company... No, I see it coming together. ...thing was born. But it wasn't done yet. Yeah, but I never saw it quite that way, that the, the initial kernel, the, the crux of what was the beginning of the roadshow, which we're going to go on and explain in a little bit, was really the notion of advancing people. It was covering the bet. Well, the reason Nikita was so successful at Bell Harbor when I did it, was because I maxed out my credit cards to buy ads in the Miami Herald. I hired the best PR guy there was. His name was Charlie Cinnamon, bless his heart. And you had to spend the money to do it. She didn't have it. So I was going to spend the money to do it anyway. That's what I mean about, you, know, you talk about the colonel. Mm -hmm. That's, that was the basic Yeah, but what you did premise. was not charity. I you were know. just making a sound business investment based upon proven performance. But I still do it every day now, right. every week at a show. We still do the same, the same pattern, the same cookie cutter. And that's what we do. So that was a very successful store, show. More successful than yours? Almost the same. And then a very good friend of mine and yours, Mimi, was with me at the time, and we'd become good friends. And she worked the show because Myrna didn't have all the staff necessary, so we'd taken some of our people. That was a huge show. So Nikki Nikita, Alexandra's father, sat down and says, you know something, we got something good going here. So let's start, if we can do this on a regular basis. And that's how Roadshow Company was born. Was the gallery making good money at that time too? Yes, I was doing well. But we kept the gallery for a while, obviously, and closed it in 2003. So that choice, that choice to go onto the Roadshow permanently and close the gallery, what was the process in that? Was it just you enjoyed 
enjoyed being uh, in the circus more or? Uh... No, it was the downside more profitable. Uh-huh. It was, it was like a trunk show and it was quick. Three days, four days doing the show. And you were gone. You went on to the, it was like a dog and pony show, unfortunately. Like, forgive my words. But, you know, we'd come into town, beat the tom-toms, advertise, music, star, PR. People come in, we sell, we close up the show and move on to the next city. Now, part of your model on this is to go into a gallery and do like you did in the beginning. We still do. Which is set them, put them up in business. Except instead of just backing them, you're running it. Yes, because now, we have a team. We sell... Let, let me ask you a question. Are you doing anything they can't? Or are you just doing what they won't? Combination or... of the two. Okay. A lot of the galleries that we deal with, we, we don't go, as I was telling you, we don't go to the A markets. We go on the premise of Big Fish, Little Pond. Mm-hmm. Our worst show, one of our worst shows was in Aspen. Go figure. Aspen's got all the money in the world, billionaires, etc., etc. One would think you'd do well there. Nope. We fell flat on our face. Our biggest show ever for Peter Max was Jacksonville, Florida. Ever. Phenomenal numbers. I won't tell you what they are, but phenomenal numbers. So when you go into a town like Jacksonville and you bring someone like Peter Max in there, it's a big deal. But the galleries, in answer to your question, a lot of the galleries don't have the resources. You know, it takes, and I'm not exaggerating, it takes anything between eighty and $100,000 to put up a show for Peter Max. It does up front. Mm-hmm. They don't have the money to do that. So we do. We have my, who I call my, affectionately, my freight train, Allison. Allison does our PR. Publicist. And she's amazing. She does all our PR. So we have Allison. I do the, all the ads. We buy ads like crazy. That costs money. So we do all this and it's all in the gallery's name. Where are the ghosts? Nobody knows it's us. As far as they're concerned, it's the gallery that's invited Peter Max to do the show, and the gallery gets all the prestige. So they're very pleased with that. And we go back. We have a network of galleries, 10, 12 of them, that we go back to every year with Peter or Dali or Masters. We also do the Masters program. We have built an inventory of amazing Masters prints. I'm talking about Picassos and Chagalls, Miros. It seems like there's a little, you know, and I've gotten a chance to witness your shows uh, a few. And it seems like there's a little something extra in it. That in a lot of the galleries that I've been to, they're local market galleries. That is, like you said, they're not the A market. So they're not in New York or Hawaii or even here in Vegas. San Francisco, Chicago, right. Los Angeles. And one thing that those big market galleries have is they get a lot of traffic from other places. They get a lot of tourism. Yeah. Right. So when you're dealing with B-level markets, they're frequently selling to people who are local. And with that comes a lack of urgency. That's what they suffer from. If I go to her gallery and I'm thinking about a Kincaid for the den, right? If I don't buy it now, I know there'll be a Kincaid at her gallery next week or the week after that. Sure. Yeah, it is the urgency. Yeah. They have to buy it or it's gone. Yeah. But I think one thing that comes with that is when you're that art dealer, with that, the only kind of urgency you create would be unethical. You would have to really hype it up. And it's not going to work in the long run because it's a community gallery and those same people are just going to keep on coming back or not, right? You get a reputation. But when you're coming into town, not only are you bringing something that's temporary, but you're bringing a group of people who don't have to worry. And I'm not saying 
thus they can do anything disingenuous or unfair, but they don't have to worry about the nature of relationship that the local gallery has to. They're not going to get invested into that conversation about their whole family and when they can do this and when they can do that, because it's all right now and it's in the moment. I'm a Star Trek Trek fan, so I'll use a word from Star Trek's as prime directive. (laughs) Our prime directive when we go into galleries Uh is to maintain that credibility of that gallery and increase it. And I'm not saying you And I'm not pontificating. Okay. I mean this. And we go to extreme measures. We have clients that come in and we'll treat them like gold no matter what. Mm -hmm. And we'll do everything we can to service that client. And we do because, like I said, the prime directive is to keep the gallery as high as possible on a pedestal as far as they're concerned. Because even if it's a client that had never heard of them, because we've treated them that well, they'll come back and buy other things from them. And that's exactly what's happened with all our galleries, which is why we have 10, 12 galleries right now that we keep going back to. And every time we go back, the new advertising, etc., whether it's with a different artist. They come in because, A, they're getting to know who we are and certainly know who the gallery is. Yes. And it's a big brand name and... And they come for it, so it works. Oh no, and I've seen it in action. And and please don't take it as I was ever no, no, no. implying that it would be otherwise. I didn't. But I know as a salesperson, having worked many different kinds of galleries in different contexts, if you're working in a day-to-day business of the community gallery, you get a little bit dulled because you're sewing the same art all the time. It doesn't have that urgency. You're seeing the same people, and you're seeing them in a very casual context. We're the spice. Right. And you, but you also lose this ability that you have when you're in your position to be working or be more focused on that prime directive. Okay. Include not only the treating everybody like gold and making sure there's integrity in everything, but getting to the heart of we're here to sell a piece of artwork. I think it comes with shows in general, which is you come out to a show, you come to see this artist. This is a very reasonable thing to want to get direct. Predatorial? Is that what you mean? No, I don't oh, mean no. it to be predatorial. I mean, I mean that you can be direct and you can be direct because there are presumptions you're allowed to have coming from the outside. Correct. That I'll, I'll put it in another context. I found somewhere along the line that I was a better gallery director by tenfold than I was as a floor, regular floor art dealer. And it was because I was really bad at small talk. I was bad at the ramp up, okay? I couldn't get into the house of weather out there and such. No But foreplay. No foreplay, exactly. <laughs> and so we won't take that any further. <laughs> and, but I, some, even before I ever became anybody's director, I would become the guy that other art dealers would go to, which is, look, I got them in the viewing room and we're all buddy buddies now. Art dealers are much better at that kind of thing than I am, but now I can't close them. And they would bring me in and just say, I'm the director, right? And I learned very quickly that that, that works, that double team, because I can play ignorant. And what I can play ignorant to is, is that there is any kind of warm-up that needs to be taking place here. I can come in with the presumption that the reason I came in is because we were just going over the fine details of this sale, and then they correct me, and then I address those objections. But I start from a place of, well, we're here in a viewing room in my gallery. I just assumed you were buying a piece of artwork. You get to be in a kind of a version of that role, which is you came to the big show, 
you know, we came all the way from where we came from. We're now looking at this piece of artwork. It's not too weird for me to say, why don't you take this home with you today? But isn't that like selling cars? No. I mean, yes, it is. It's very much like selling cars. Yeah. I'm just saying, you kind of get to be the hit, man. You know, to actually, use another analogy. Actually, I'm, I'm not. I don't mean it in. in, in no, no, I understand per- that. Yeah. I'm, and I'm not taking it that way. But we've learned over the years. Uh-huh. One good thing about Roadshow Company, if I may boast, is we're always learning. We're always 25 years now, and we're still fine tuning. But take a show like Peter Max. We're in there for three hours on a Saturday night and three hours on a Sunday afternoon. That's six hours. Hypothetically, we've put in $80,000, $90,000 into doing the show. We have to sell enough to recoup that. So, and you've got anything between two and 500 people coming in, and there's like six of us selling. You develop a skill and a presentation line very quickly because you've got six hours Two, two events of three hours each to qualify somebody, demonstrate the item, or tell them about the piece, and sell it. And you've got to do it the fastest way you can. It sounds, again, like a Philistine, but I don't mean it to be. Um, my girlfriend accused me of being a predator sometimes because I, she says the way you do this is very predatory. I'm assuming in the, in the context of art sales. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. But like I said, this is a business, and we have to recoup our investment and we do that. We've run into situations, and I won't tell you where, with galleries who've told us, well, in the beginning, this, this is what they said, we don't like to push our clients. We like them to, we don't want to put any pressure on them. So please don't put pressure on them. And at that point, we turn around and say, thank you very much, but we can't do this. Well, it's also define pressure. Well, I mean, that's a pretty loose term. Is pressure... Asking, do you want to buy this? Exactly. Or that's, is, that, that's what they conceive as pressure. This right. is what I mean about galleries not being able to stay in business. Yeah. Because 90% of the battle is asking for the sale. Mm-hmm. And most people don't ask for the sale. And this is what we try and teach the galleries as we go along. It's like somebody's, you've looked at that piece on the wall, you've talked about it and everything else, and you know you're leaving today. Mm-hmm. Why would you say, would you like it? That's all you've got to say. Yeah. Would you like it? At least it'll elicit an objection, like, I want my husband to see it, which you can address. But unless you ask the questions, you're not. Well, what's interesting, a lot of the galleries don't do that. They don't like doing that. And that surprises me. That's what I meant about purists and the way they want to run their business. And to me, it's, it's different. It's a business. You know, there's a thing I used to do with the people who I used to. Uh, uh, have worked for me and later on just train. Uh, and that was, I would go right to what I felt was the heart of that kind of thing. And that was, it, to me, that reflected that they didn't have comfort and respect in what they do for a living, that they were insecure about that. You know, a doctor doesn't ask you, is it okay if I do this? They're a trained professional, they have an education, they know we're here to do something very specifically, and they go and they do their job. And anybody else does that. Firefighter, you name it. There's no reason why someone who literally, or almost literally, has put the sign over the door saying, what I do for a living is sell art, needs to be apologetic for that. And it, it's a discomfort, is where I think that comes, that feeling that it's pressure. But Danny, because it's somewhere in them they're saying, I don't have the right to do this. We are different then, because most galleries don't do that. 
Mm-hmm. The successful galleries do it. That's why they're successful. Right. And that's why so many other galleries are fallen by the wayside is because they've either gone to the business because it's a hobby or because they love the artist that they're trying to represent, but they don't go into make the effort of selling it, actually selling it. And selling it involves an asking for the sale, and they won't do it. Mm-hmm. This is what I mean. I'm answering your question. No, you are Pressure. <laughs> this is what they call pressure, to yeah. ask for the sale. It's crazy. Why are you in business? Getting back to uh, the urgency thing for a minute, though, it's occurring to me as I'm thinking about this. There's a double, uh, two different types of urgency that are taking place in your model as well, where they can take, get themselves off the hook. You know, if it gets uncomfortable or it gets too difficult, they can take themselves off. We're the bad guys. Huh? We're the bad guys. (laughs) No, go to a slightly different place. Because they can always say there's tomorrow. You know, there's 30 to 31 days in a month. There's seven days or five working days in a week. This is just Tuesday. Or this is just whatever day of the week is. Or just this hour. Or just this up that I'm talking to. There's the next one or the next day in the next month even. And you can kind of just keep on down the road letting yourself off the hook. Whereas your guys coming in, there's no version of that. This is it. We've got two days to do this show or however long it runs. And they probably get a lot more comfortable with it too because of that. It's not just their urgency, the people coming from the outside, the collector, that this is all going to go away. It's, I'm not going to be here on Monday to ask you if you want to be the, buy this piece of artwork. I'm here right now, so I'm going to ask you. Actually, we've trained the galleries over the years to, especially the ones that are worried about the pressure, mm-hmm. as to make us the bad guys. In the sense that, you know, they're only here for two days. And so... So forgive them for being so a little blunt. So forgive them for asking you... Exactly. Yeah. Forgive them for asking you if you want to buy it right now or not. Uh-huh. And you don't have to buy it right now. I mean, this, this is where you want to cut their tongues out. <laughs> Instead of backing you and going, on the other hand, they have a point. <laughs> you know, the, the first thing about uh-huh. selling, the first selling 101 is ask for the sale and shut your mouth. <laughs> because uh-huh. I've seen so many people who ask for the sale and then keep yapping. I'm talking about the salesperson. And talking themselves out of the sale. Oh, yeah. So you know that. You've done this. I've done it to myself. Uh, <laughs> I learned better. <laughs> no, I did too. But it's, I it's how I know not to do that. Yes, and it, exactly. It only took me a few years. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it sounds, it's very scientific. I mean, selling art is very scientific. How selling that? anything is very scientific. Okay. You're the client. I'm the salesman. You have your money in your pocket. It's my job to get your money from your, from your pocket and take this piece of art home with you. So it obviously starts off with being adversarial. I mean, I'm, I'm coming down to brass tacks. Okay, okay. It is. How you, get, how you do the process is the science. You ask a series of questions mm-hmm. that makes you, me, make you relax as a client, comfortable enough to buy what I'm doing. Unfortunately, in this business, too many people lie about the value. That's what I'm talking about, value and pride of ownership. You know, I want you to buy that glass because that glass is going to be worth three times as much in five years. Mm -hmm. That's not true. And a lot of people do that. You know that. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a point in that process you're talking about, which is engage the client and find out where those objections are, what they need from you and what they need from this sale to make it work for them. And a lot of times they're bringing that to the conversation. What they're saying is, is I need to know that whatever this thing is I'm buying, 
is going to be worth a lot of money in the future. Value. So what they've done is they've set up an equation that in many cases, either because it isn't there to begin with in the art, the answer to that need, or it isn't there in the skills of that art dealer to be able to identify ways that they wouldn't necessarily literally identify as where that value would be, but to introduce it as a surrogate or something just as worthy. In my opinion, there's one correction to what you just said. Okay. When somebody buys something, they don't want to know it's what's going to be worth more at a, at a point in the future. What they want to know is that they're not overpaying for it now. Absolutely. There's a big difference. I think for years... You buy I've, a car. Yes. You buy a car. You don't want to overpay for it. But you know it's not going to be worth the same thing three years from now. It's going to be worth a damn sight less. But you still buy it because it's a functional need. The same thing with art. People want art. They love it. They want it. A lot of them hope it's going to go up in price. And this is what I meant about the galleries that do lie about it. But in reality, what a person wants to know is that they're not overpaying for something. And that's where we make them feel comfortable. I've always jokingly but half seriously called it the schmuck factor, which is people want to be insured that they're not going to be a schmuck at the end. You know, they want you to cover that. You know, make pro somehow prove to me that when I've, I've done this and months have gone down the line, I'm not going to realize that I was an idiot in the process or made to be the fool. Okay, one or the other. You know, buyer's remorse, as we know, is, is very prevalent in this business. And sometimes when I'm called in, like you said, to close the sale, I will take that other step and go to them and say, and you know, some of my salespeople have looked at me like I was crazy. And I'll go, are you absolutely sure you want this? Mm -hmm. I'm doing two things. One, I'm making sure that they want it for themselves. And B, I'm making sure it doesn't come back. There's no buyer's remorse. So it's better to make that statement now than regret it tomorrow morning when they can wake up and say, oh my God, what did I do? Right. And then bring it back and say, I want my money back, which is fine. We, we have no question about that. We always get the money back. Yeah, because even if they were thinking of bringing it back the next day, they'll think twice mm -hmm. because of what I said. Because, you know, and I'll repeat it. I won't just go the one time. I'll go, are you absolutely sure right. you, want, you want to take this beat? And then I know it's done. But if I can emphasize one thing and that galleries should do, and, and as God, I've seen where they don't do this mostly, make it fun. We make it fun. We make it fun for ourselves. We make it fun for our galleries that we do shows with. Because then they want us back. If we didn't do it right, we wouldn't be able to go back. And there's some galleries we've been going back for 18 years, every year. So clearly it's fun for them too, it's, not, yeah, not just it, good money. But like I said, it's a dog and pony show. It's music and there's food all the time. We're a real food-based company. We eat at, every, at the slightest opportunity we eat. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah. Roughly around two. No, actually, it doesn't work that way. Around 10, 11, we're talking about lunch and you know where that's going to come from. And then once that's kind of settled into our stomachs, around two yeah. or three in the afternoon, yeah. everybody's huddling together and talking about where we're going to go for dinner that yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> no, at lunch, we're talking about where we go for dinner. So basically, you're just like my family on the road. But let me ask you this. What do you think over the past 10 or 5 or wherever you want to break it down years, you've seen the changes to, that have evolved into where things are at the moment? Well, there have been a lot of things that's happened in the last 10 years. The internet is a big one. That's made a big difference to the art business. Mm -hmm. I, I personally, I believe it's kept everybody honest. Um, at, at some level where I sell art, when I talk to the things, the auction houses haven't helped. 
because they're now more run of the mill. They, they're advertising heavily, they're marketing heavily, they're dealing directly with the public. In days of old, nobody thought of going to Sotheby's and Christie's and doing the auction. It was, it was taboo. Um, it's much more commonplace now. Uh, that's, that's made a difference. The combination of the two has also affected things, certainly at the level we sell out at. But it's also made a difference because I personally think that we're going to lose a lot more galleries because the days of two reasons, the day, days of brick and mortar galleries are, I think, numbered uh, simply because landlords are pricing themselves out of the business. I mean, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 a month in rent? It's absurd. Um, that's one of the reasons I got out of that business years ago. So the bigger question is, though, can, how much can our business survive without the brick and mortar? Uh, you've got to have brick and mortar to a point, but I'm saying it's, it's going to diminish to me, from the current state. And maybe it's just because and of the sad. way I came into the but, business, but it's like removing oxygen from the equation. They're, they're a key part of the ecosystem. I, I think people will always want to, want to actually touch and feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you and I are seeing more and more now is... Galleries dealing with their clients because they've already got a bond, a bond going between them. Um, Hi, Mrs. Jones, you're in New York. I'm here in Las Vegas. I have this wonderful Picasso I'd like you to look at. My reputation alone speaks for me. Um, so she doesn't have a problem with dealing with it or questioning the authenticity of what I'm selling. And I'll ship it to her because she can make it down here. And she puts it on a wall, decides if she wants it, and then sends me a check or gives me a credit card. Where's the brick and mortar? But your business, for instance, even though you bring in the dog and pony show for just a brief moment, your model is entirely based upon the brick and exactly. mortar. Exactly. I say it you out know, of concern. Right. And it's, you know, in, in your, you market in a way that I see our own marketing working, which is it, you hope it brings in a certain amount of people, but you're really doing is creating an external spectacle for the existing client list that's coming into the gallery. You want those people on that list who have seen it on television to read about it in the paper because it just builds an enthusiasm for what it is you're bringing in. But you're living off, not living off, that's a bad choice of words, but you're working with the clay of their list that they cultivate from the day-to-day business inside that box that they sell the art in. You remove that from the equation, what happens to Roadshow? Could Roadshow function without it? No. Right. No. There will always be brick and mortar. No question. Mm-hmm. has to be. God, I hope so. But there will be a lot less of it. Let, let me give an example. I was looking for a gallery in Hong Kong. Big market. We'd just done two shows in Singapore and kicked ass. This was the Dali. I'm looking to take it to Hong Kong. Guess so how many galleries I found on street level? Prominent galleries. Last time I walked the streets of Hong Kong looking for galleries, I would say I found a good, solid dozen street levels. None. Two. Actually, two. All the major galleries. All the major galleries. 21st floor, 32nd floor, etc. And Gagosian doesn't count for what you're talking about. But still, yeah. if anybody can afford to be on street level, he can. But nope, not the case. The prices are so ridiculous. And this translates to the United States as well. I mean, yeah, crazy. You're talking about a decent mall today will run you anything between $20 to $30 a square foot a month. You know, we translate that, $40,000 a month for a 2,000 square foot gallery. So half a million dollars a year. 
You better be doing the business to survive. And a lot of them aren't. That's why they're going away. And I'm afraid. I really am afraid. But there are also other elements of that equation that there are people who survive at that rent. And, and a lot of them, of course, it's like we've talked about, they're, they're really just advertising, you know, but not everywhere on every street. Some people make a living paying that kind of rent somehow. If the cost of the art, if that was free, let's say we didn't have to pay the artist or pay the agent or anything else. You know, you sold a $10,000 painting, it was $10,000 into your drawer. Could we survive that rent? Again, or is the problem again, not enough people the out art. there to buy $10,000 pieces? Oh, there are people out to... there. Believe me, there are people out there who have survived for 20 years, okay, 25 years. Um, but they're not quite enough. I mean, obviously, if your gallery that can't survive with that rent was selling but, you know, you know, five pieces I... like that a week, but I said you can sell 1,000 pieces like that a week. But, you know, this is where, as Americans, we're creative. And, uh -huh. you know, we talked earlier about how we are different from the rest of the world when it comes to selling art. Nowhere else is this done anywhere in the world, anywhere else. For example, you come to a Peter Mac show or a Salvador Dali show, the piece is $6,000, $12,000 for the sake of argument. You could pay for it over two years with no interest. So it doesn't cost you $12,000 anymore. It's costing you $500 a month mm -hmm. to own that piece of art. And it's very doable. If, you, if you're earning 100000 whatever you're earning, you want the piece badly enough and you want to ele elevate yourself to that stage, you can do it because it's not laying out that cash. So nowhere else. You don't do that in Asia. You don't do that in Europe. Nowhere else do you do it. A lot of people go, mm, I don't want to do that. Well, fine. You want to see how long you're going to survive. Our sales, when we did this, I, I introduced this 15 years ago, we spiked 30%. I mean, just like that because people could afford to buy it. And now on our tags, again, people think it's very gross, but on our tags at the bottom, it's like this much down and mm -hmm. this much over 24 months. So we do the math for them and it works. What, Galleries what, should do that. What percentage of credit do you sell versus straight out purchase? Between 35 and 40% per show. So take away that. Yeah, it's taken me a long time on that. I used to work the gallery floors when the credits were just showing up. Mm -hmm. And... It made me uncomfortable. It felt weird. Why? Because it's a very discretionary item, and I'm asking people to buy things that are outside of their capacity. That is, you know, when you buy a car, you have to get to work. You have to, you know, you need it as a utility. So it makes sense. If I can't afford to buy it all right now, I have to have it so credit's going to work into that function. And I think it's, it's different for every buyer, too. You know, some buyers buy it. They're, they're worth a lot of money, but all their money's not in cash. And that's just reasonable for them. You know, they have millions, but they're not going to pull it out for just everything. But it was used for everybody. And occasionally you brought, had people in who were, you know, these are $50,000 a year families, you know, that were being proposed the idea of buying the $2,000 print in payments. You know, you make me smile because this is one of the things with, that we do at training. And I talk to my staff and we smile a lot and, um, you and I are the same cloth. Um, but actually, we are not very good salesmen for what we say. You and me. You and me. Um, client walks into your gallery, falls in love with the piece, it's $1,000, and really wants it badly because he's been coveting it for a while, and he wants it. And in the course of conversation, he tells you that the $1,000 is his month's rent, and he's already a month behind.
and he's absolutely crazy enough to want it. Do you do that? Do you sell it to him? Big question. If you're a good salesman, you should take his money. It's his problem. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Neither ne- would you. Neither can I. No. We had a There's situation. There's margins in there, though. We had, we had a situation in, where was it? Austin, mm-hmm. I think, not long ago, where I got called in by one of my staff because they didn't feel comfortable. The mother, a young mother, when I say young, in her late 30s, was insisting on buying a piece, and she had two of her children with her. One was 14 and one was 12. And one of our salespeople heard the arguments. Uh, The kids were telling her, don't buy this. You can't buy this. We'll have to sell my car if you buy this. You can't buy it. Yeah, that's pretty sobering. That uh, Really. And so they came to me, Beth, who's our sales girl, came to me, Nim, I'm not comfortable doing this. What do you think? So I walked over to the lady, and they were having a battle, so I let them finish. Uh And I walked up to them, and she said, have you heard of what's going on here? And I said, yes. And she said, um, what do you think I should do? I said, don't buy it. And she said, really? I said, don't buy it. And the little girl gave me a kiss. But, you know, this sounds like I'm, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I couldn't take her money. Because, It's not worth it. No. There's no amount of money that's no. worth it. I, I mean, I obviously, able, that deal maybe was a couple able, hundred dollars in your pocket at best. But even if it was a $2 million painting. No, it was just a $2,400 sale. It was a heart. I right. remember that. Uh, but, but there's just, nothing worth, you know, and I say this in a lot of other contexts. Obviously, I don't do retail nearly as much as you do, hardly at all, at this stage of the game. But I, I always tell everybody they do business with, I'm not honest just because of an ethic. I'm honest because I value my ability to sleep at night more than anything well, else. Yeah. It's just that's the life I want. I yeah. like closing my eyes and feeling fine. It's just, we don't, for the same reason we have signs on the wall that says, don't buy art for an investment. Mm-hmm. It's, and you know, I'm coming across like holier than thou and I don't mean to, I swear to God. Um, I just, like I said, like you said, I, I, I need to sleep at night, I and I don't to, need the money that badly. Here's where I eventually got to on the uh, the credit. It was the balance I found for myself, and it was a it was a pitch. There's got to be a better word for it, but it was a presentation that was a little you know was along these lines. If it came up, I said, unlike buying a car, Ford's not going to make more when we run out of these. That's the one thing that makes the concept of credit work. That is, if you're in a particular position where it's just a matter of you don't have the money today, but it's not a heartache, you know, it's not like you're worried about. Yeah, it's not a stretch. It's just a matter of how you're moving money around. It's a tool to use to be able to grab it in a moment that you're seeing it and falling in love with it, then maybe you just don't have the cash in your pocket this second. And that's about it. Exactly. And who does? Anymore. Who does? Not, not, you know, people don't have that much expendable income anymore. They don't because they're buying things to make their lives more comfortable. And you know, some go overboard. But, um, but generally, people are sensible. And, they, and 
this allows them responsibly to buy something. If not, don't do it. My, my, my mantra is, you never need to stretch to buy a piece of art. It's too much. No. And it takes the joy out of it. Yep. There, I, I've done that. I've bought things that were tough to buy, you know, that were a push. And I've always regretted it. And it wasn't just the regretting that I, you know, I put myself in any kind of danger or anything. Is that I made that thing that I wanted so badly joyless. Uh, you're much more disciplined than I am. Because uh, I need immediate gratification. <laughs> I'm talking about speaking of the past. Today I can afford it. Uh -huh. But speaking in the past, I wanted something I couldn't, didn't have the money in the bank, but I was making enough money in my next paycheck or whatever. And I knew I could afford the $100 a month extra that it would do. Um, I'd skip going out to dinner with my friends one day. But, and that's one of the lines we used to. It's like, you know, you, it's $100 a month, so don't go out to dinner with your friends one night. Right. And, but at the end of 24 months, you paid for a very important piece of art and you're going to enjoy it for the rest of your life. And, Look at the warm feeling you get when you see it every morning. But you've got to have you've got to have some ethics. So, is there anything we didn't talk about? Hell, we solved the problems of the world. <laughs> Thank you much, buddy. I really appreciate it. Anytime. All right. Dim. He delivered his side of that story much more elegantly than I could have. I'm talking about the part of, is there any difference between art dealers and folks that sell any other high-end merchandise? Uh, I thought it was a really well-worth-it conversation. And uh, I gotta say, Nim, he delivered. He gave a great, great conversation on his end. Uh, also, being intentionally nice, as I'm thanking Nim, and want to say I really appreciating him uh, inviting me to his home because I want to be invited back again to have another one of those meals. Uh, that was really good. It kind of stuck with me. I may not be ready to concede to Nim's point of view on some of those things, particularly that conversation about is there any difference between art dealers and other high-end salespeople? But I will say this, he's pretty damn elegant in the way that he expresses his point of view to begin with. I also want to thank him. I want to thank him for, for doing this interview, and I want to thank him a hell of a lot for inviting me to come over for dinner with his family. That was fantastic. I know this episode was a little bit of a long one. I even thought about cutting it into two parts, but honestly, I couldn't find a place in the middle of our conversation where I can clean it, at least slice it. It was just the nature of how Nim and I get along. One thing just perfectly weaves into the next thing, and it just doesn't work like separate topics. So... I'm glad you hung in there this far, and we'll just get going here. I'd like to thank our partner sponsors, Art World News, Relevant Communications, and of course Redwood Media Group. And I'd like to thank you, and I'd like to ask you, as always, please subscribe and give us a review up on iTunes. Both of those things make a big difference, and if you're looking to give me a little bit of a thank you for this podcast and you like it, it's the best way that you can do it. So until next time, my art-selling comrades, may the coconuts fall from the trees to your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us at artdealer.show, facebook.com slash artdealershow, tweeting 
at Handle Art Dealer Show, Instagramming at Art Dealer Show, and right here at the old Art Dealer Lounge. <laughs>